of the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it may seem like the pandemic is winding down, but experts remind us that it's far from over for those 12 and under. When do we expect an approved vaccine for children? Many Canadian companies are rethinking business travel now that COVID-19 restrictions are starting to lift. Is a hybrid approach the best way? We'll talk about that. And half of Canada's golf team at the upcoming Tokyo Olympics will be from Hamilton. Alana Sharp is one of them. She'll join us on the program. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, uh, let's talk about what's going on with the pandemic and uh, with the uh, vaccination program. Uh, the pool of those eligible for accelerated second doses of COVID-19 vaccine has now been expanded to all Ontarians aged 12 to 17. Global's Tina Trajani has the details. There are a few ways to book an appointment this morning. You can use the provincial website, public health units that use their own booking systems, or through participating pharmacies. Whichever you choose, a reminder to be patient as systems get overwhelmed, especially when they first open. Tweens and teens will receive a Pfizer shot, which at this point is the only COVID-19 vaccine approved for this age group in Canada. Vaccine supply is being bumped up this week with the arrival of 3.7 million doses. 900,000 of those will be Pfizer. In total, 18 million doses are coming this month. The majority of those will be Moderna. That's enough to fully vaccinate all 33.2 million Canadians who are over the age of 12. Tina Trajani, Global News. So uh, the program rolls on. Uh, And to get an update on exactly what's going on and just how well we're doing, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Peter Uni, who is the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Uh, Doctor, thanks for the time. Pleasure to have you back on the program today. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. Well, doctor, I get my second shot uh, later on this afternoon. Uh, I don't fall into that 12 to 17 uh, demographic. I'm a little older than that. But are you pleased? (laughs) (laughs) A little bit older. Uh, Are you pleased with the the rollout, how it's gone? I know first doses are very high. We've done pretty well on that. But as you've told us uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, with the Delta variant out there, that second shot is very, very important. Are are you pleased with the, the way that we're moving toward that? Yes, absolutely. We just need to keep going. We need to be aware of that. Right now, um, Ontario is the only Western region in the world that I'm aware of that actually is able to deal with Delta. And this is only because of two things. One is that we're extremely, extremely successful with our vaccine rollout. And the other one is that we are slow with our reopening. Every single other place, including Finland, the UK, Spain, Portugal, Russia, Israel is struggling. Why? Because they're either not as good as we are with vaccines or they have opened far too much and now they're in trouble. I guess one of the things that underscores what you've been saying about how deadly this this Delta variant can be uh, is maybe Israel, because I know that their vaccination rate was extremely high, uh, yet they've had breakouts in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, this is correct. Look, we we need to understand that this is really now, again, (laughs) unfortunately a game changer, but this time we can vaccinate ourselves out of it. And uh, we just need to keep doing that. And I'm really, really uh, finding very important now that also, you know, the the kids, the young adults, etc., continue to push in not only for second doses, but also for first doses. We have seen a bit of a flattening of the curve. If we do that, we will be okay. The point really is what people need to do is a little bit of math. If we had the good old garden variety uh, early strains of uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus causing COVID-19, you know, what happened is you introduced the case today, okay? Five days um, there were an ad- uh, five days from now, there would be an additional three cases. Ten days from now, there would be an additional nine cases. And 
15 days from now, there would be an additional 27 cases, you know, three times three times three. That's how it how it multiplies. With the Delta variant right now, it's completely different. You introduce it today. Five days from now, you have seven. Ten days from now, you have an additional 49. And 15 days from now, you have an additional 343. You get the dynamics that are completely different. And that's what we need to deal with. And this only works if we continue to do the vaccination as fast and as thorough as we can. Now, I know you've also talked about first doses, and it's good to see those numbers over 70% here in Ontario. But uh, is it true that the first dose is only about 30% effective against the variant? Yeah, I, I calculate more about 40, like 40%. Okay. But, you know, this doesn't mean we should let go of first doses. Of course, everybody needs to get the first dose first to get make it to the second one. Mm-hmm. And what we also see is, you know, for instance, in the UK, a lot of the trouble ahead in the UK, also in Israel, is because people didn't receive yet the first dose. So to everybody out there, go and push for your first dose if you haven't had it. It's really important. Uh, as one of your colleagues told us a couple of days ago, uh, if you have not been vaccinated, either first or so, obviously or the second, uh, this variant will find you in some way, shape or form. I mean, it's spreading that quickly. I'm not suggesting everybody who doesn't get vaccinated is going to get sick, uh, but you, the chances of it happening are, are grow exponentially, don't they? Oh, look, this is now completely different with this basic reproduction number of seven as compared to three, you know, at the very beginning. What this means is that... I just did the calculations last night and was actually quite a bit shocked. You know, when we look at that, this really means that during the once we reopen completely for to all of those who are out there who uh, didn't receive a shot yet, um, at least 80 percent of those who are not vaccinated will be infected within six months. Wow, that's uh, that's rather sobering thought to think about that this just means we need to get vaccinated everybody you know and there's no you know there's no space for conspiracy theories no space for beliefs etc it's overwhelmingly clear you will be much much safer if you get vaccinated and all the other theories are just wrong and and the good news about that, of course, is there are vaccinations available for everybody now. It's it's not as if with the, like it was three or four months ago, where well, well, we're not sure if we're going to get the shipments. Apparently, uh, you know, the government and I know the ministry is feeling pretty good about the fact that if you need one, if you want one, you can get one. Absolutely. Let me ask you about the, you mentioned about the opening and how we're going so much slower than a lot of other jurisdictions are. Uh, you know the numbers uh, that the government announced about oh seventy three percent I think with first doses. I think we're about thirty or thirty five percent for second doses. Uh, you know there was a lot of pressure on the government from a lot of circles to say look at accelerate this. Let's just go to stage three right now because we're doing so well. Uh, I'm getting the sense from what you're saying, though, doctor, that your advice would be stay the course. Oh, it would be extremely silly if we now deviated from the course. You know, it's just people who don't understand the epidemiology who say that, you know, who wouldn't, who basically wouldn't pass the marshmallow test. That's nonsense. Okay. So first of all, we're already at 78% of uh, 12 plus who now have received at least one dose. And uh, and, uh, 43% actually are fully vaccinated means we have now more than 10 million people in the province who received at least one dose. It's really amazing. And, and uh, the point now is that, you know, the cutoffs that we had with, uh, you know, the 20 percent uh, for, uh, for, for uh, two doses and 70 percent for one dose, etc., 
that were related to these steps, they're completely not valid anymore with Delta. What we see now is that we really need to make it to roughly 70% of the population fully vaccinated before we can go to the next step. And the beauty of that is, if we continue to do the good work we're doing right now, three weeks after step two, we will be exactly there. So we're completely on time. And if we don't get ahead of ourselves, we don't end up in the same trouble that you will see now happening in Europe or already is happening in Europe, such as in the UK, it will get worse now there. Just go there and have have a look. We also will need to see what happens in Alberta. I'm not really at ease with Alberta. You know, they just get ahead of themselves far, far, far too much. Oh, well, Saskatchewan's about to follow suit. In just a couple of days, Premier Mo out there is essentially doing what Jason Kenney did, is lifting most, not all, but most of uh, the COVID restrictions. And I, I guess your message to them would be, uh, well, look what happened in the UK and Israel. Yeah, 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 for sure. And you know, the point really is if you once you have understood these dynamics, it's different if you talk about, you know, after 15 days, if you talk about 27 cases that could happen if you open everything versus 340 cases. That's a difference, which is massive. And people need to get this aboard now. We can't rush this. And right now we're the only place in the world with that much delta where things still work out without exponential growth. You and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about the, the under 12 group, and I know you were concerned about the, the vaccine rollout for them. They're not there yet, uh, and you were afraid that it might actually be toward the end of the year. What's, what's the, the latest on that? Is there any progress being made? I wouldn't have any news there. It it looks as if, you know, um, the, the, those finding studies go well. Um, but, you know, the point really is we need to understand what is the optimum now or not the optimum, but something which works well for kids in terms of the doses, in terms of the intervals. Mm -hmm. um, because we need to make sure not only that this is effective, but also, also that it's safe and that therefore will take a while. This just means we can't just uh, play things very easily at schools, you know, then we'll need to stay a few restrictions. We want to make sure that all the kids can go back to schools, that as many as possible have received their first dose if they're above the age, uh, 12 or, the, or above the age of 12. And uh, that just, you know, for, for, the, for the younger kids that we just have enough restrictions in place that schools are reasonably safe. That's an interesting point because I think just because of the time frame that we're looking at, uh, you know, come September when the kids are supposed to go back to school, there's a very strong likelihood that that under 12 group are not going to be vaccinated. It's just not ready. And I don't know if they can roll it out quicker. I hope they can. But let's let's assume that's the way it's going to be. Uh, that underscores a lot of the stuff that you talked about over the last nine or 10 months about the schools themselves, uh, the social distancing. I know that, you know, your organization talked about smaller class sizes, uh, improving ventilation systems, things of that nature, uh, it would be uh, probably incumbent upon the government to start moving in that direction, to prepare those physical school environments uh, for, the, for the kids who are probably not going to be vaccinated come September. Absolutely. You know, I think it's really important that we change our way of thinking about this virus completely. This doesn't only hold up for schools, but also for bars and restaurants, etc. Mm -hmm. There are two things which will be really important. Three things. Um, one is ventilation. If you can't do everything with ventilation, you can still do filtration. You know, there are air filters out there that are very efficient. The third one is indeed, as you say, occupancy, that you don't, you know, just uh, have too many people in a single room. And all of 
that can be addressed and all of that I understand is being taken seriously you know, by the Ministry of Education. So we need to keep working on that. In addition, there's absolutely no way to think you know, about this without the cohorting story that we had, you know, that we keep classes together. So if there is an outbreak, and this will go very swiftly as we've just seen with Delta now, that the outbreak stays within a class and doesn't spread like wildfire in an entire school. And of course, the other part is in addition to ventilation, that's the comp- the uh, the complement to it, it's the masking. Even though it's a nuisance to a certain extent, and when we're inside, and this also holds for our students, we just need a mask right now to, to just provide additional protection. I guess that underscores the importance for uh, the other people in that school environment, the teachers, the staff, and uh, maintenance staff, and all those folks, to make sure that they are vaccinated come September. Yes, indeed. And, you know, we need to be aware of that a vaccine is only 95% um, effective against the uh, garden variety early strains of the virus and about 88% now against Delta. This means we need to really be able to uh, have protection as much as possible with ventilation, filtration, masking, etc. everywhere, because even if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have a zero risk. And this means you don't want teachers, for example, to be, you know, just just, uh, just uh, repeatedly exposed or staff, and uh, you don't want the older students who are vaccinated to be repeatedly exposed. Therefore, we just need to continue to tread carefully during the next few months. We can do that. We just can't let go of everything we just uh, started to do, and then we can keep things open and we can have this good sense of opening. I mean, it's wonderful now out there, you know. You don't need more opening than what we have right now to feel liberated again, and that's happening out there in the province. Now we see that everywhere. If we now get a ahead of ourselves and say, okay, we now start to jam people into restaurants, indoors, etc. We just don't do the right thing. This is guaranteed, actually. So there are always going to be people that are not vaccinated or not vaccinated enough uh, as these openings continue. Uh, What are your thoughts about some form of of proof of vaccination a vaccine passport is the phrase that's being used uh to to indicate that yes you know nobody's 100 percent safe but to at least understand that you know you've reduced the risk considerably yeah we will need a system you know that is uh, falsification proof and uh, very uh, easy to handle basically that allows people to document they're fully vaccinated and to be honest with you and that's of course my personal view we haven't uh, discussed that at the table i do not see any possibility look now at israel what's happening there for example that we would be able to open, you know, places like indoor dining, for example, without having a vaccine certificate just governing the access into indoor dining. It's just too transmissible and this will be a real challenge. Um, you know, this this would have worked out very nicely with the garden variety um, early strain or even with the alpha variant that bothered us that, that much, remember, very, very recently only, you know, when we had the third wave, we would be completely okay without a certificate. I can't see this happening with, uh, with uh, Delta because it's simply too contagious. And there are going to be pockets of population, probably even in our country and even in our province, uh, they're going to have lower vaccination rates than the average. And I guess we have to be cognizant of that, that, which is another reason, I suppose, to make sure we don't let our guard down. 
Oh, yes. I mean, when you think about that, you know, even if we make it to an amazing 85% of uh, vaccinated people aged 12 plus among this population, we then still have about 1.4 or 1.5 million of people who are not vaccinated, you know, and that's a lot of hospital admissions and a lot of ICU admissions and could burden potentially the healthcare system dramatically. So we need to find a way and really everybody now needs to help. If you want to reopen fully, get vaccinated. And that's the message. Uh, always reassuring to have some time with you, doctor, to get a, a read on exactly what's happening. Thank you so much for this. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yes, same to you. Thank you. Dr. Peter Uni from the Ontario Science Table. He is the director of that organization, and of course, a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you heard from uh, Dr. Uni just a few minutes ago, things are moving along nicely as far as the uh, director of the Ontario Science Table is concerned anyway. And uh, he says, stay the course. You know, that's not open too quickly here. But it is happening. As a matter of fact, today there are going to be some looser border restrictions. Well, the implications of that are mixed, I guess. Uh, David Bowles from Global has got the details. Fully vaccinated Canadians and permanent residents who've been inoculated with vaccines approved for use in this country will be able to skip the 14-day quarantine. Travelers will be required to submit their vaccination details to the Arrive Can app or web portal prior to departure, as well as a negative COVID-19 test less than three days old. Discretionary travel between the United States and Canada is still prohibited right now. Canada and the U.S. have agreed to have the international border closed until July 21st. David Bowles, Global News. Discretionary travel is still uh, the kibosh uh, right now, but what about business travel? I mean, that was something that was a very, very key element to business before the pandemic. What's it going to look like coming out the other side? Pleased to welcome back to the program Mark Agnew, who's the VP of Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Mark, thank you for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. Yeah, always a pleasure to be with you, Bill. Things are evolving. Uh, business is starting to evolve right now. I, I know a lot of people that pre-pandemic uh, spent a lot of time crisscrossing the country as part of their job. You know, face co- conferences here, conferences there. Uh, that stopped, obviously, because of what's going on with the pandemic for the most part. Uh, is it going to be business as usual in, in, from the business community, or are they looking at the alternatives and looking at what's happened over the last 18 months and say, maybe, maybe we should rethink this? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a mixed bag when we talk to our members. There are some uh, companies that have adapted to this and they've embraced the new way of doing business and they will continue to do things in a mostly virtual, mostly remote uh, manner. But on the other hand, there are a lot of other companies that recognize there is nothing that can replace being there to, you know, so-called press the flesh um, and that you gain so much value from those body cues and the things that you can't pick up over a video screen as a way to facilitate doing business. So it's going to be, it's going to be quite uh, variable across uh, companies and across sectors. How, how, what's the comfort level with this? I've, I've been uh, had occasion to be involved in three or four of these uh, you know meetings depending on what platform you're using uh and i i concur with you by the way i I think it's a lot more effective to actually have a face-to-face uh with somebody as opposed to doing something on a screen like this but uh, did you get the sense that some of your members have grown comfortable with it um i think there are a lot of folks that have grown comfortable with it and what i think has helped shift that quite radically because we've all been in this boat together. Um, The worst situation in the world is when you have a meeting with 15 people and one of those 15 is dialed in remotely and they're at a massive disadvantage. So the pandemic has actually been the great equalizer in terms of putting everyone on this, uh, this, this sort of, you know, virtual space. Uh, So no one is kind of left out in that sense. But I think as people do start to go back, 
um, and start to re-immerse themselves in in-person contact, I think it will have a bit of a snowball effect and people will start to develop also that personal comfort level and confidence that, hey, you know what, it is actually safe to be getting out there on planes and going out to travel and meeting people uh, again in person. But it's always those first steps, as you know, that are the hardest. It's interesting. I'm looking at some statistics here. Uh, this is from the Global Business Travel Association. Uh, business travel in Canada dropped by 51% in 2020. Now, obviously, that's not going to stay that way as, as the restrictions start to ease over the next couple of weeks. But that shows you how important business travel is to the airline industry, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of work that, um, you know, is, is that, you know, being done by people traveling and business travelers, uh, they're more likely to, for example, to buy business class tickets. Um, you know, there's those regular streams that are happening throughout the year. I mean, tourism is in July and August, but people are doing business travel in the other parts of the year. So it certainly is critical for hotels, it's critical for the airlines, it's critical for the restaurants to have people that are doing business, uh, business trips. The other element to this is, uh, you know, the airlines will be saying, hey, you know, come on, guys, get back on the planes, let's start doing that business thing again, because that, that's a, a key element to them. But there's a cost to that to the business. There's probably a discussion, I would think, going on right now, Mark, is, you know, do we really need to send, uh, you know, Mark out to Vancouver for that meeting, or can he just do it remotely like he's been doing for the last 18 months? I would think a lot of companies uh, may be looking at that and saying, you know, we could save a lot of money if we just continue doing what we're doing now. <laughs> Certainly. Well, I, I'm I, I don't mean that. to. I'm not trying to ground you here, Mark. I'm just. Saying. <laughs> well, I, I'm hoping to get on an airplane to go to Vancouver and many other destinations. So hopefully, my uh, my employer isn't listening in right now. But um, there are going to be uh, you know companies that I think are looking at their bottom line, they're looking at their travel budgets, and they're going to have to rationalize. Um, you know, given everything else that's going on in the world, you know, where is our, you know, dollar best spent to get that ROI and get that, get that sale, get that contract. And so, you know, if you're in a business development relationship, you're still going to want to probably spend some of that money up front for developing those in-person contacts, um, you know, with potential clients where you might be able to sip, save a bit is perhaps on the back end if it's those follow-up meetings where after you develop that first contact you may not have to go in person because we've all developed a greater level of comfort with zoom calls as a way of engaging uh, we should remind people too that when we say the restrictions are going to be eased uh, this is not you know the be all and end all that's coming out i know that uh, your boss parent Petey, the president of the canadian chamber uh, says that at this point he looked at the the restrictions as they are as of today and says it's actually easier to vacation in tuscany than it is to take a flight to the maritimes for a business conference uh, so you're not there yet are you no no and um you know, the next stage that we're going to be looking for particularly is what is it for foreign nationals being able to come into Canada also, um, whether it's for business purposes to do, you know, something that I know you and I have talked about previously for technicians that have to come and yeah. do service on a maintenance facility, uh, or also foreign tourists coming in. There are whole communities that their livelihood has been decimated because of the lack of tourists coming into the country, and so they're hoping to see progress on that as well. And, and the other element to this, too, is the way the business is done. I mean, we're talking about east-west, uh, you know, going from Halifax to Vancouver or whatever the case might be. Uh, but a good deal of business is done across the border, too, and, and that's going to be problematic for the next while. Yeah, and I think one of the elements that is hoping uh, on our end that we're going to hope to see come out of this soon is that there also will be that parity between uh, modes of entry. Because um, right now the rules are different if you're driving across the border versus if you're trying to fly across the border. And that, I think, has made it complicated. And we've seen people that have been having workarounds with you know, driving to, you know, Plattsburgh and then taking a flight out of there um, to help to avoid the quarantine hotels. And I think it's just made the whole thing more complicated than it otherwise needs to be. And so having coherent rules that will facilitate people moving north-south, because that's how, as you said, a lot of the businesses 
uh, flowing would be quite helpful to have. And and we're talking about actually, as you've mentioned, uh, you know, fully vaccinated nationals, Canadians. Uh, the American side of this thing, notwithstanding their their statistical story about vaccinations, is still going to be problematic because the border still is closed, and we're not sure exactly when that's going to happen. But there's another element to this that I wanted to ask you about. We were talking with somebody from the tourism industry just a couple of days ago in the hotel industry, and and a big part of that uh, is the convention business, and uh, you know, conventions and people from all over North America coming to Toronto or to you know, Vancouver, New York, wherever it's going to be. Uh, and, of course, they set up shop there. There's a number of things that go on. It's a, it's the way a lot of companies, as you know, do business. Uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, even if they say, okay, you guys can start it at the end of the month, uh, because of the travel restrictions that are in place, not just here but in other parts of the country, uh, this that's still going to be problematic, I would think. Well, I think about even how the Canadian Chamber runs its annual general meeting, which brings together hundreds of delegates from across the country. This is something that we sign contracts with the hotels in that city 12, 18 months in advance to be able to lock in those dates. You lock in the, you know, the 10% discount on hotel rooms and all these things. So you absolutely do need that lead-in time. The other element um, to it as well is something that you'll hear people refer to occasionally as being the sort of, you know, the, the travel or the tourist ecosystem. And so... Um, what that really means is to say when people are going to conventions, they're also going to go to restaurants in the area. They're going to go potentially bring their families for a couple of days of you know sightseeing. Uh, they're going to go to the tourist shop, all these sorts of things that mean that there's massive spin-off effect to the local economy. It's not just about ensuring that the convention center has money, but the, the local uh, businesses that surround it. I attended one of your conferences, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, years ago in Calgary, and I can vouch for exactly what you're saying. It seemed as if thousands of us descended upon that city, uh, and we're there for, I guess, four or five days at least, or something like that, and you're right, there's, it's not just the hotel. There's a number of events going on in different venues. Uh, you have to eat, a number of restaurants that, that are doing well. It's it's a real boost for a, a community like a Calgary or a Hamilton or a London, uh, who I know hosts a lot of these, uh, these conferences, these business conferences and conventions as as well. Uh, it's a real boost for the economy and something that they've been missing for the last 18 months. And I think it's easy to sort of dehumanize it and say it's, it's about you know the economy and it's about the, the local business. But at the end of the day, these are employers who employ real people. Um, and in the hospitality industry, you have a lot of new Canadians, you have a lot of young Canadians where this is the first job that they get on the resume to accumulate experience. Um, so it's actually a very real human impact that we've seen in these industries because they haven't had the dollars coming in, and so they haven't been they haven't been been hiring staff. They haven't had staff on the payroll, and so um, there's a very you know real element to this on people's livelihoods that I think is easy to forget when you talk about the economy in a very broad sense of the word. Hey, and by the way, I'm including trade shows on this too because I know how important they are, which is. I would think somewhat more difficult these days too. I mean, you, uh, if if you're on a Zoom call, I don't necessarily know if you can show your product there because this it's, it's just logistically going to be very very difficult, if not impossible. But from the other standpoint, having attended a number of these things over the years too, uh, you better bring a couple of boxes of business cards because there's a lot of sharing that goes on. A couple of uh, might be anecdotal conversations, as you say, at a, at a restaurant or something like that, that might lead to a business call down the road. You don't necessarily get to do that with Zoom, do you? No, and I think about, you know, some of the trade shows that I've been to, uh, one of the best ones I, I went to was actually a food export show, and you're going around, and, you know, it's, it's samples left, right, and center, um, but 
you know, you, I couldn't imagine ever doing a food trade show in a virtual format because um, the whole point of it is you need to be able to be there. You taste it live. You taste it when it's fresh. And that's how you get the business card. And that's how you said you make those in, initial contacts. Um, I'm thinking about there was one business uh, here in Canada, and they were selling a particular uh, kitchen uh, appliance into uh, the White House. And so they said that Michelle Obama had come across this product and it ended up getting installed in, uh, in the White House kitchen. And I think about that example. And that never would have happened virtually, right? It's only because they are able to have that in-person contact with her that they are able to then get this product, you know, built into probably the most famous residents in the world. Talk to us about about going forward here. I mean, you know, we we know what the timeline here is on Ontario as to when we're going to move into stage three. Uh, we're not sure about the the the, the U.S. government's uh, feelings toward the border thing. I know that a lot of folks on both sides would like to see that open. But even when it does, you just mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Mark, it's going to take a while to kind of get up to speed on situations like this, as you say, to book something, because we haven't been doing any of that stuff for the last 18 months. Uh, you know, do you, do you just pick up where you left off? You know, the, the next conference is going to be pick a city, you know, uh, but there's logistics that have to be done there too. So even if they say by September or so, you guys can start doing what you were doing before the pandemic, uh, I, I'm wondering about the likelihood of actually gearing up before even the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, you might see a couple of folks that are able to knock things together quite quickly. As I, you know, that the pre-Christmas rush, and there's going to be always that pent-up demand that a couple of companies have. But you're right, it is going to have quite a long, um, you know, sort of implementation time, I think, into 2022 before you start seeing these things, uh, you know, ramping up in a more significant way. One of the other pieces that, um, you know, has to also come back is, is business confidence. The last thing an employer wants to do is send someone to a conference where they then catch COVID and, you know, the employer is not going to, you know, feel that they've done right by the employee. Uh, the employee has to stay at home, so that's lost, you know, productivity time. And so those that consumer confidence is going to take, uh, you know, to take some time. And that, I think, has to be factored into it. But this is where, you know, some of the stuff that you and I have talked about previously are on rapid testing, contact tracing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all these measures together are what will get us back as quick as possible to whatever that sort of new steady state and new normal looks like. And, and some businesses are going to adopt, as, as you've said, a, a hybrid model where some people are probably going to continue to work remotely uh, at least part of the week, if, if not totally in situations like that. But I guess there has to be a discussion about the logistics and the repercussions of that. Do you need as much office space? Uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to have a third of your staff doing stuff remotely right now, uh, you have to rethink that. So, I mean, there's a, like a domino effect that is going to affect, uh, uh, I guess, vacancy rates and office buildings, a number of different things are at play here. Yeah, and we, I've certainly seen that even in downtown Ottawa here. You know, some businesses that, um, you know, had been, you know, f- favorites of mine to go to, they've boarded up shop because they haven't been able to uh, keep their doors open due to the depressed demand over the last 16 months. And so as much as there are hopefully going to be new businesses that will come in to take their place, um, it is going to take time for the dust to settle on uh, on that as well. You know, and also public transit. Um, a lot of us take public transit into work every day, and that involves a lot of people in a very crammed, uh, cramped quarters. And, uh, you know, that's going to take a little bit for people to feel comfortable, I think, doing that, uh, you know, once again. And as great as we've been with the vaccine rollout, we're still not, you know, at the 75%, uh, you know, fully vaccinated uh, population threshold, which seems to be what the federal government has signaled is what they look at as being uh, sort of herd immunity threshold. 
Mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a very successful business person here in the community uh, about this very thing just last week, and you know, he was echoing what you were just saying that uh, it's, it's going to be up to each individual company. But he says nine times out of ten, he says if we're talking about actually, you know, signing a contract, in other words, you're talking money, you got to do it face to face. He says remote just doesn't work at you. He says you just lose something in in the the bond that you're trying to build there. Well, and especially if your competitors are the ones that are going uh, for a meeting face to face. If I'm, you know, picking between, uh, you know, two like products, but one person I met face to face, I know what they're like. I have probably a higher trust level versus the person I've only had a Zoom call with. Um, you're going to be at a disadvantage if you're the guy who's uh, just doing the remote connection over uh, over a video call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. The, I guess the the offhanded comment is schmoozing, but I mean it pays off in business to, to no to spend time with them, right? You know, to do it over a lunch and and talk about other things as well as the, the business, and it's it's a lot more personal than than a Zoom call would be. Well, you I mean absolutely. You can call it schmoozing. I would actually just say it's human nature. Um, there you go. You know, you you would. You I mean you don't go into sort of marrying someone unless you've met them in person at least once. And in mm-hmm. some ways, having a business relationship is a kind of marriage in in some respects. <laughs> Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how this rolls out because you have to take what business needs to do, what they're going to be allowed to do over the next little while, and, and hopefully there's not too much of a disconnect between those two. Uh, are you confident that, uh, that that we're moving on a, on a pace that uh, that we are going to be able to roll this out and, and businesses are going to be ready when they, they finally get the green light? Um, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, um, we're seeing things start to open up across the provinces. Uh, we're seeing today the implementation of the first um, you know, phase of the border reopening. I think for us, the big question mark is still what is phase two, what is phase three, you know, four, whatever it looks like coming afterwards. And we're still really, you know, ham- hammering home on this point that there needs to be that detail. Um, there was a, a thing that the government had put out, uh, federal government, sorry, had put out on Friday afternoon last week, sort of alluding to 75% of Canadians being fully vaccinated as what they see as the, the threshold for mm-hmm. border reopening. But, um, you know, I think what that looks like in practical details, there's still a lot for them to articulate out to businesses uh, for what that means in, uh, in practice. I'm so glad you had some time to spend with us here today, Mark, because there's a lot of concern here about getting the economy back, and, 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 and obviously the business community is going to play a role in that. And as we talked about, some of the spin-off effects that it's going to have on hotels and so many other aspects of this, too, a key part to this that I hope governments are taking into consideration. Uh, thanks again for this, Mark. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me again, Bill. Talk to you soon. Take care. Mark Agnew, who's the Vice President of uh, Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just a couple of weeks away from the Olympics, I guess these are going to be dubbed the Pandemic Olympics for a variety of reasons. And uh, still a great deal of controversy about who's going to be allowed to actually watch some of the events. Inez de Cuerta says with just three weeks to go, whether or not spectators are going to be allowed is still up in the air. The president of the Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee saying banning all fans from the Tokyo Olympics is still an option. The move would reverse a decision made 10 days ago to allow a limited number of local fans to attend, up to 10,000. Fans from abroad have already been banned as they are considered too great a risk. The games are set to start in three weeks, but there are growing concerns the event could turn into a super spreader as cases in Tokyo continue to rise. Inez de Liquitera, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. Well, that's a concern, obviously, for spectators, but also for the athletes and the participants in the Olympics, too. One of them is uh, our next guest. Uh, so pleased to welcome to the program Hamilton's own Elena Sharp, who is going to be one of the uh, members of the Olympic golf team for Team Canada. Elena, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I'm uh, happy to be with you. Uh, first of all, congratulations uh, on being named. Uh, I, I would have thought it's a slam dunk, but you, you don't know until you know, right? 
Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, like I had a huge, a huge lead on the next player, and um, it's hard to make make up points if you're not on the LPGA because it's weighted higher how they do the rankings. So it was just a matter of like getting to you know June 28th and being named on the team with Brooke. And, and of course, Mackenzie Hughes on the men's side, uh, along with Corey Connor, uh, to make up Team Canada, a pretty elite company, all four of you. But I, let me ask you about the atmosphere around this, Elena. I, you know, a number of, of people on both the men's and the women's tour have opted out, even before the announcements about who's going to be on the team were said. They said, don't even consider me uh, because of the pandemic and the concerns about that. Uh, in your particular case, did you and Sarah talk about that? Um. You know, I, no, not really, because we got vaccinated in March, and um, we just, I don't know, we've traveled already, and we've been in Asia once this year for two weeks, and um, we traveled safely last year to Scotland and was fine, and, you know, it's just, it's it's unfortunate that this is what we're going through, but I'm really happy that we're able to get to go and play and represent Canada in the Olympics. And we should mention to our, our, our listeners that uh, all the protocols that we've talked about uh, are in place and are going to be in place. Uh, I guess one of the things that you experienced in Rio that you're not going to experience uh, in Japan is, is the Athletes' Village. You guys are going to be separate and apart and pretty restrictive as to where you can go from what I understand. Yeah, I mean, Sarah and I are going to be in the Athletes' Village for two days. So, um, But it's going to be different, obviously. You can't really congregate or do much. Um, but I wanted to still go and see it because it's like it's part of um, a huge part of what I enjoyed in Rio. And obviously, of course, everything's going to be different this time around, not mm-hmm. being able to go to other athlete events. And we're going to be in a hotel. Our venue is pretty far from the village anyway. So getting to stay in the hotel cuts off like I think 30 minutes in the car, which is quite a lot a long drive um last last time in rio we were lucky we were only like i think 10 minutes away so um yeah there's going to be a lot of differences obviously but uh, the main important thing is you get to go play so exactly I'm really looking forward to it yeah, I know, having talked to some people that were at the Rio Games, uh, actually one of the guys who's on the Board of Education here actually was a, an interpreter and a liaison officer uh, down there. And as he was saying, there's a real camaraderie in that athlete's village, and that's one of the real big parts of the Olympic experience, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, last time, like I was told, you know, you get pins and you want to, you know, trade with the different countries, mm-hmm. and I did that a lot. I think I got a huge number of pins. I can't remember the the total, but that was a fun little thing to do, like in between, you know, going to the course and going to the cafeteria and seeing like how all the other athletes train in the gym. Like it's pretty amazing. What's it like to to work and, and to represent your country? I mean, just about every athlete, or even you know, wannabe athlete who's ever played ball hockey on the streets in Hamilton or London, or you know, chucked around on the the golf course at Shidoka or something, always dreams of being a member of Team Canada. This is the second time for you. What's it like? I think there's no greater honor than to represent your country. And um, you know, as growing up as a little girl, I pretty much thought, well, I'm not going to be an Olympian, but I love watching the Olympics. Um, I wasn't a good enough hockey player to go down that route. So for when golf was named as an Olympic sport, I was really excited that they were going to uh, allow professionals to be the ones that play. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to describe what it feels like to represent Canada. Um, I find, you know, golf is an individual sport and 
I'm playing for my the name on the back of my of Sarah's back, you know, the caddy bib, and mm-hmm. now it's like okay, now I'm playing for Canada, the red and white, and the Maple Leafs, and um, yeah, like I said at the beginning, there's no greater honor, and um, love, I'm very happy to represent Canada at these games. But you may raise an interesting point, though. A lot of people look at golf as, well, it's it's you against the course. Uh, and it's a team. I mean, obviously, you, you, Sarah's with you, and, and you're getting advice, and there's a dialogue going back and forth. But once the, once you, you're off the first tee, are you forgetting about representing Canada, and you're just playing the course? I think, you know, yeah, you have to play the course, but also in the bigger picture, you realize that you're representing your country, so... It's a little bit different than a tour event in that respect. But, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, staying president one shot at a time, um, you know, beat the golf course is definitely, like, the top thing on on my mind when I'm inside the ropes and I've teed off. Do you know the golf course at all, the one that you're going to be playing at? No, I don't. Um, I've just heard that it's a typical Japanese course and maybe some cross bunkers will be in my in my landing zone, so I might have to adjust what I hit off the tee, and the greens are fairly big and undulating is what I've heard. So premium on, you know, carrying, knowing your carry yards is for your irons and uh, hitting the correct quadrant on the green so you have a good shot at birdie. My understanding, though, is the uh, the men's part of the tournament is going to be before yours, so I guess there's a chance that you might get some intel from some of your teammates. Definitely. They play first, and we're going to be there um, a little bit early, so I'll probably go out and watch Mac and Corey. I know that I'm allowed to do that, so watch them play. I mean, obviously, it's a different course for the men because they hit it so far, but to Mm -hmm. be able to see how it's playing and um, just, you know, just go out and support them as well, it's going to be, that will be the best experience of the Olympics for me this year. And, of course, you're going to know a lot of the people that you're competing against. These are all people that, you know, are from different parts of the world. Maybe you should, just to let our listeners know for, about the camaraderie that goes on on the tour. You know, we you see the competing, uh, you know, the competitions that are going on, you know, on, especially on Saturday and Sunday, the last couple of days of a tournament, uh, where, you know, it's intense, obviously. Uh, but my understanding, from talking to Mac and, and Mackenzie and others, that, that there's a real friendship and a camaraderie between an awful lot of you. Your competitors, once you tee off, but friends off the, off the golf course yeah definitely i feel um i have a lot of great friendships out there and you need them because it's a long year and you know it can be lonely i'm very fortunate that sarah's with me every week um but yeah i think that uh, there's a lot of friendships that are pretty strong out on our on the lpga and you root for your friend if they're in the last group and you stick around to see if they win so i think that happens a lot how, what's the the discussion like between uh, you and Sarah during the course? I mean, you're talking about obviously the shot that's coming up, the shot you just made, situations like that. But I mean, walking up to the ball, etc. Yeah, I, I see a lot of uh, looks like casual conversation. What are you guys talking about? Um, <laughs> I guess depends on the day. Sometimes <laughs> what's going on in the world. Sometimes our dogs. Um, yeah, just some random <laughs> topics to. It's really hard to focus on golf for five hours straight. So, like, one huge thing that we're trying to work on is to not talk about golf in between shots, even talking about the previous shot because I can get hung up on that. So, yeah, we just uh, talk about whatever. <laughs> well, let me ask you about that because I, we all know, you know, with the great career that you've had, you're pretty intense on the golf course. Uh, does Sarah counterbalance that? Does she know when to kind of dial it down to kind of, you know, get you a little bit cooler? 
Yeah, she's definitely helped me a lot. Um, you know, focusing less on golf in between shots because, like I just said, it's hard to focus for that long for five hours. Um, she's very positive and helps me see things in a more positive light when sometimes I can be kind of negative. So um, it's been very helpful. And since she's been on my bag, I've had the best part, you know, the best part of my career has been the last five years. So. And what about the, the, obviously the chemistry is there on the golf course between you guys and off the golf course as well. But uh, getting that next shot and that and that's always the most important shot. I, I've talked to some professional golfers in the past, and I'm sure you concur. Uh, the most important shot is the next one you're about to make. Uh, for the, those of us that are hackers on the course, and you know, you hit one bad shot on the on the first fairway, and it bugs you for the next 19 holes, uh, break all the way back into the clubhouse. Uh, how do you get refocused like that? How do you overcome that adversity? Because you, you've shown time and time again. I mean, even when you get into trouble, you, it's it's the uh, the recovery shots that really seem to make the, uh, a round of golf that that special. Yeah, I mean, staying in the present is really important, obviously. And, and I mean, I think everybody falters in that area at, at at some point. Like last week, I was stuck in the past and made another bogey. Like you have to get over it and move on to the next hole, the next shot, um, you know, kind of being present, not into the future of like, oh, this is a par five, I can get there and two and make a birdie, or and like what you said, being holding on to one bad shot for 18 holes and then still talking about it after the round's done. Um, being in the present and being focused on that shot that you're that is at hand is the single most important thing and you know professionals sometimes don't do it properly or they're not perfect with it but um, that's what we all strive to be in the present well i mean when you're on the tee obviously you're looking at the fairway you're looking at where the shot's going to go and uh, what club choice is, is going to be best for you in situations like that but do you do you envision i know a lot of athletes that they do this visioning i mean wayne gretzky used to talk about that when he was still playing about you know he envisions what he wants to do and and psychologically it seemed to help him do, have you tried that yeah i think visualization is huge um when i stand behind the ball i'm visualizing the ball flight and where i want to hit it because obviously for for tee shots it's pretty simple you pick something on the horizon and try and hit it there but for shots into the green it's not always straight on shot so you want to play it maybe to the right of the pin because of the pins tucked or something like that so it's really important to be visual on your targets and when I'm chipping I pick a spot on the green I want to land the ball on and then with putting I see my line going into the hole so yeah very visual I think it helps um, create good pictures for the brain so then you can go ahead and actually do what you're seeing and I think it's, it's easier when you have good visuals to execute the shot. Does the shot that your opponent made affect the way that you're going to shoot? When If they shoot first and and you're coming up after them, do you, do you watch what they did and, and, and learn from it, or do you change your strategy based on what they've done? I mean, sometimes I, I don't like to watch that often. Um, sometimes on par threes, like I'll watch the reaction because we're at the same spot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes on the green, if we're on the same line, I'll watch the line of the putt just to get a read on it, but that's about it. I don't really like watching tee shots too much, um, but those two things are important, I think, to be paying attention to. Now, what do you do between now and the Olympics? Uh, are you going to be busy? Yeah, I'm pretty busy. I'm flying to the, to Toledo today um, for the Marathon Classic this week, and then mm -hmm. this next week I have the team event. with Sarah, I'm playing with Sarah Kemp, and... Then after that, I'll, um, I think I have a week off, and then I'll be going to the Olympics on the 27th. 
uh, and the excitement, I guess, is going to build. But it's it's great that you've got these tournaments coming up in between now because that's your focus. I mean, golfers, it's you're as you say, living in the moment. It's got to be that tournament. You don't look ahead too far, do you? Right, and like my game is in good shape right now. I just played well in the major a couple weeks ago. I, I played all right last week. I just I think I was a little tired from the major being in contention. It takes a lot out of you. Um, and I'm going into these two tournaments where I've played well in the past, so I think it's good to play and have you know my game's in a good spot. So now I just let it happen and um, hopefully have a, a good couple weeks before heading over to over to Japan and just keep build, building the confidence back. Well, wish you luck in Toledo this weekend, and uh, certainly in Tokyo in the upcoming, and in the interim as well. Uh, a pleasure having you on the program today, Alina. Thanks so much for this, and uh, good luck going forward. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you today. Take care. Alina Sharp, uh, two-time Olympian, LPGA golfer, of course, from Hamilton, uh, and Mackenzie Hughes from Dundas on the Canadian side uh, on the men's team. So uh, well represented on the uh, the team uh, th- this year anyway. And it's going to be different, as we said. I know some sarcastic people are saying it's the pandemic Olympics, but it's certainly going to have an impact. I mean, let's face it, these are the Olympics that were delayed a year because of the, the first and second waves of the pandemic last year. And the concern, as you heard in our report just before we started talking to Alina, is uh, is what's going to happen. I mean, a lot of athletes have simply backed off and said, we, we don't want to gather. It's too risky. And they haven't yet decided if spectators are even going to be allowed, and if so, how many. So that's a work in progress. So we'll see what happens down the road. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.